You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome back, everyone, to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes a thoughtful analysis at the early struggle to build the State of Israel. Let's focus on a battle where the vastly superior Egyptian army was attempting to cut Israel in half and detach the Negev from the Jewish-held territory, referring, of course, to the battle in the beginning of the War of Independence. The Egyptians had ample manpower and firepower to accomplish this. It was 60 Israeli defenders in a pit, armed only with rifles against an army with a mechanized division, including 18 tanks. The Egyptians advanced and pulverized whatever was in range of their cannons. The Arab village of Kartia, that the Israelis had just captured, was reduced to rubble. The Egyptians made quick work of any other structures on the horizon that protruded from the ground. Then they started to train their fire upon the soldiers' position, sending the sandbags into the air as if they were paper cups. But then they came crashing down as if they were, well, sandbags, upon the heads of the young Israeli soldiers. The rifle fire of the Israelis was pointless against the mechanized division. It did not even do as much as chip the paint on the tanks. By this point in the battle, which was just before 10 o'clock in the morning, in broad daylight, the Israeli soldiers were not positioned in the lion's den, but within the voracious jaws of the predator. Directly behind the tanks was an elite Egyptian infantry division. Never was the metaphor, there are no atheists in a foxhole, more appropriate. And the prayers were not for naught. In that company was Ron Feller, or with Israeli pronunciation, Ron Feller, the classic curious fix-it man with the wonder hands. Blessed with a scientific mind, he would later go on to become a professor of agriculture engineering and would be recognized in the world as an expert in agricultural mechanization, registering 12 patents and seven inventors' awards. The reason that you do not see, smell, or taste dirt when you cook potatoes is most likely thanks to Dr. Ron Feller. But Dr. Ron was just a soldier then, and he was frantically playing with his newly arrived toy called a Fiat, not to be confused with the automobiles manufactured by the Italian car maker. The Piat resembled a heavy tube made of sheets of steel and was a 39 inches or 0.99 meters long and weighed 32 pounds or 15 kilos. The tube housed a spigot mechanism and a firing spring. There was also a trigger mechanism attached and a monopod. The rear end of the weapon had padding to rest the shoulder. The front end was made in the shape of a trough with a movable spigot rod on which a projectile was placed. The Piat launched high-explosive anti-tank projectiles with a shaped charge. This novel charge allowed Piat projectiles to penetrate through four inches of armor. Its projectile tail was made in the shape of a hollow tube, into which a propellant's charge was inserted. The Fiat was essentially a pipe with a spring that jettisoned the shell the size and the shape of a wine bottle. Fundamentally, it was a sophisticated Molotov cocktail. In open view of all, Ron, with the Fiat contraption on his back, advanced in a desperate crawl toward the tank formation just ahead. As he was advancing, he was still reading the instruction manual, 
which stated that the weapon is only effective from the distance of 40 meters, which equals 130 feet, or, easier to conceptualize, the distance between home plate and second base. Think how terrorized you would be if 18 tanks were pointing to you from the outfield. Now, move that up to the infield. Bullets are raining all around him. Make that pouring. But each one, each one of thousands, just missed him. And he kept advancing over the sand and across the thorny brush until he reached the sweet spot of distance. It was him against 18 enemy tanks. And somehow, he detected which was the lead tank, even though they were arced in a semicircle. When asked how he knew which was the lead tank, he abashedly said that he could somehow tell from its behavior. There were no neon lights flashing or other exterior indication. The battle lines were drawn in the sand. It was the 9th Brigade of the Egyptian Army with 18 tanks and other mechanized vehicles against the Fiat with but two shells. It was David against Goliath. Despite the hail of bullets, Ram continued to advance as stones and sovereign needles scratched, cut, and impaled his body. One meter at a time, he advanced into the incessant fire, which kept intensifying. There was nothing to conceal him, not even a shadow. His cruel to get into range lasted half an hour and felt like an eternity. When Ram determined that he was at the ideal location, he loaded the shell, adjusted the contraption, and released the spring. The shell hit the target, but arrived at an angle that allowed it to be deflected and bounced off, causing no damage. Considering that half of his weaponry had already been wasted, it was hard to chalk up the first firing to target practice. Ron sized up his mistake and loaded his final shell. The success of his mission depended upon him precisely directing the point of impact to be directly under the turret. He took aim, Somehow, with calm determination, in the most austere and adverse conditions, and on a wing and a prayer, he fired the Fiat. The firing was a bullseye. The tank exploded in a bowl of fire, and dark, menacing smoke enshrouded the battlefield. The members of that tank crew were toasted, including the Egyptian commander of the operation. Under the cover of the smoke, the 17 remaining Egyptian tanks beat a hasty retreat, leaving the infantry division frightened and exposed and no match for the Israeli soldiers who had suddenly seized the initiative were able to mow down the Egyptians who no longer had any mechanized support. Ron Feller, with industrial helpings of heavenly assistance, was not only the hero and the savior of this battle, but the very one who caused the Egyptian forces in the Hebron Hills to be isolated from their battalions and resulted in them mimicking their comrades and retreating. Ram's bravery was decorated with the Gibor Yisrael, Hero of Israel Medal awarded to only 12 soldiers in the War of Independence. A shy and a modest man, he never spoke about his prestigious award. Thirteen years after the War of Independence, Ram Feller was asked if the Medal of Heroism he had received had affected his life. And he said, I do not think so. Not at all. I did not need help. I did not seek special respect. Certificate simply hangs on the wall. 
He modestly clarified all this to the Israeli newspaper Ma'ariv, and then Feller thought pensively for a moment, and then he corrected himself. And he said, it is possible that the sign of heroism helped me once after all. It is possible that it made an impression on a young woman, and she agreed to marry me. Ron Feller's heroism was rewarded in another way, which is much more significant. His son Rami is revered and admired in the business and religious community for his integrity, generosity, and helming a family that is a model of magnanimity and intellectual stamina to the multitudes they take, that they impact upon and the, that they take under their wing. Back to the battle. Despite the plethora of against all odd miracles, after a month of fighting, Israel barely held on and had managed to maintain only one-third of the territory that was assigned to it by the UN in the partition plan. Had the Arab countries made the right decision and turned down the ceasefire, there might not be a Jewish state. But the Arab side was, no, was also worn out from the fighting, and they thought that they could use the time of the ceasefire effectively to regroup and complete the job of conquering what would become the Jewish state. Truman's recognition of Israel put the Atli government, and we all remember his very anti-Jewish Minister of Labor and National Service, Ernest Bevin, put Atli's government in England in a painful dilemma. As Connor Cruz O'Brien points out, for the White Paper of 1939, in addition to curtailing Jewish immigration and the ability to buy land, meant Britain showing priority to her clients who were the Arab regimes of Egypt, Iraq, and Transjordan. This included Britain ensuring that these regimes did not lose prestige in the eyes of their own subjects. Once these regimes attacked Israel, the only way that Britain could safeguard the prestige of these regimes was for Britain to assist these nations in defeating Israel. There was total confidence among the Arabs that they would trounce Israel. However, if they failed to win this war, then Britain's friends would be utterly discredited and Britain's influence would fatally be undermined. Britain, whose empire was crumbling and was broke, would be even further undermined. It was the empire on which the sun never sets. By the turn of the 20th century, the British Empire covered 10 million square miles and ruled over more than 400 million people. Two world wars, however, changed all that. Bankrupt and broken, with independence movements on the rise, the empire's days were numbered. So, although the White Paper forced British alignment with the Arabs, Truman's recognition of Israel served notice that support of the Arabs would mean friction with the United States, which the British could ill afford. One month before recognizing Israel, Truman had launched the Marshall Plan, for which the recovery of Western Europe was dependent, including Britain, which was broke. For the British to defy Truman was a really bad move for them, and financial suicide. The international community wanted an immediate ceasefire, and the Swedish diplomat Folk Bernadotte was appointed to broker it. Bernadotte was complicated and supremely confident in his abilities. He had served as the president of the Swedish Red Cross during and after World War II. In that capacity, he had engaged in critical negotiations with SS chieftain Heinrich Himmler in an effort to rescue survivors in the death camps and concentration camps. Bernadotte had conducted the discussions with elaborate and, in the eyes of the Jews, unforgivable 
caution and circumspection, refusing to grant Himmler, until the very last moment, immunity from Allied retribution. Bernadotte, on the other hand, viewed himself as a rescuer of the Jews, and we shall see how, is, how his assassins viewed him quite differently. And now, in 1948, Bernadotte, according to historian Howard Sachar, was determined to turn the ceasefire into a binding peace treaty, and this personal triumph would undoubtedly be rewarded with the Nobel Peace Prize. Bernadotte's proposal managed to outrage the Arabs, except for Transjordan, and infuriate the Jews. During the war, as the head of the Red Cross, he had saved thousands of Jews, but he also met with high Nazi leaders, including Himmler. Bernadotte felt that he could secure a permanent break in the fighting. The truce imposed an embargo on importing weapons and strengthening troops that both sides violated. Israel received weapons from the United States, despite the United States arms embargo of selling arms to Israel, and a huge shipment from Czechoslovakia. Most of the arms which came to Israel came through the route of Czechoslovakia. The United Nations ordered a ceasefire for 30 days, which came to effect on June 11. The Security Council also prohibited the importation of arms into Palestine and into Arab states. Truman has been accused of selling out Israel by agreeing to this embargo, denying military assistance to Israel in its hour of need. This criticism misses the point of the embargo, which was to prevent Britain from arming the Arabs. Israel is well equipped to beat any UN embargo and continue to import arms from many sources, primarily Czechoslovakia. Britain was obliged to honor the embargo, more out of fear of the United States, not the UN, as they could have vetoed that resolution. Britain complied strictly and also abruptly recalled almost all of its regular officers serving with the Arab Legion, which was definitely a blow to the Arab fighting prowess. Thus, as Connor Cruz O'Brien notes, in one stroke, Britain's client regimes were deprived of any material support from their patron, and also deprived of their traditional source of arms and military training. Britain was like a wounded puppy, that's my own analogy, as both the United States and for the time being the Soviet Union were siding with her enemy. To Israel, the truce had come, as one commander commented, like manna from heaven. It was a breathing space for exhausted people and also an opportunity to build up resources for the expected next round. But the truce was hardly 10 days old when a dispute broke out between Israelis, which for a very tense period of time seemed like to threaten the infant state of Israel with civil war. And we shall continue next time, please God, with that unexpected threat of civil war. For now, thank you very much for listening and thank you for, to Maddie and Alex Drucker for production engineering assistance. Please be kind enough to spread the word of our podcast to your friends, to your associates, to your relatives, people in your workplace. And be kind enough also to give us a five-star review for The Shirley Helps. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already 
very reduced prices of Ulchanoch teleproducts, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Tele from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.